Vengeance is the Lord's only when we're willing to act and do our duty, when we're willing to to press the impenitent for penitence and to exercise discipline when they don't, to exercise a censure, that's important, to fail to do so because of a misguided sympathy for the offender, that's actually unloving and it's potentially quite destructive for the offended party. Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 99, and I'm your host, Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. Back behind the microphone with us is Dr. Alan Strange. A while back, he reflected for a few episodes on the podcast on church discipline, and he ended by mentioning that there are three classical purposes of church discipline. He stays on track with that line of thought, but also brings to us a fourth purpose of discipline, that being justice for the offended party. Well, Jared, it's a delight to be back with you again and all of our listeners for whom we are truly grateful. We're always thankful for those who support and pray for our seminary and who listen to these podcasts. We we couldn't do it without you. <laughs> but um, I've been asked to uh, talk a little bit more about church discipline. You may recall that I had uh, several of these podcasts, three to be exact, on church discipline. And this podcast, uh, I should say, assumes those first three. So uh, you will need to uh, listen to those if you haven't to make uh, the most sense of what I'm saying, although it is self-contained. So maybe I just uh, <laughs> contradicted myself. But uh, no, I think uh, it would be helpful if you were familiar with those three. And one of the things I ended with when I was last speaking uh, with you, uh, wonderful listeners, uh, was uh, I mentioned the purpose of church discipline. And I said that Classically, church discipline has a threefold purpose, uh, but I also think there's an important fourth reason. And uh, some of you have been kind enough, some of my wonderful listeners uh, have actually asked about that fourth purpose, so we're not going to leave you in the dark on that. Let's talk about this a little bit then, um, that the the three classical purposes of church discipline, I'll just list them and then talk about them a bit. The glory of God the purity of the church, and the reclamation or the recovery of the offender. So these are the three purposes, and I think they make sense as we go to God's Word and work through this. The first, of course, is the glory of God, because nothing is ever more important than the glory of God. We as Reformed believe, in fact, that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that last little point, to enjoy him forever, highlights for us that being disciples, and I remind you that that's really the first meaning of discipline, that we're disciples of Christ, and this discipline should be sought for, right? We should seek to be his disciples as faithfully as we are able to be by his Spirit, And so it is sought for, and when we fail in that, 
Uh, it may be imposed. It may be imposed by others informally. We talked about that. Uh, a friend or an elder or a pastor uh, saying to us, uh, should you behave that way? Uh, Bill, should you speak to your wife that way? Should you speak to your child that way? Uh, those are friends speaking to us. And then when there's a failure, you might say in that, when when we won't listen to others, uh, then the church as a church, as an entity, the the body of elders, the consistory, the session uh, can then speak to us uh, and bring to bear, even as necessary, if we won't repent, bring to bear censures. And there are lesser censures uh, like admonition, rebuke. There are more serious censures like suspension. And then, of course, the gravest uh, of all the censures, excommunication, when we remain impenitent in our sin. It's important to recall that we're never excommunicated for the sin itself because there's no sin so great as we cannot repent and be restored. But it's when we just won't repent, even if it's a smaller sin, even relatively speaking, we're, we're telling lies and we're called on it, but we won't repent of it. This can lead to serious consequences. But the three purposes, the glory of God is the first, back to that, and we know, we need to always realize that that scandalous sin and scandalous sin is sin that we commit that makes other people stumble. Uh, we do something and other people look at it. Maybe we're publicly drunk or we're publicly doing things that are wrong. We're speaking in very harsh ways. Uh, and these can be things that cause people to stumble. Scandalous sin that is not addressed by the church ultimately and that is not repented of detracts from God's glory. It brings dishonor upon his sacred and holy name. There are a lot of scriptures that we could reference here, but think of, of Genesis 39.9. And one of the important things about that is this is the account of Joseph being tempted by Potiphar's wife and refusing to yield to her temptation. And remember, this is before the law is given. This is before Moses receives the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And we have that seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. That that law is written on the heart of Joseph as a believer. And he will not commit adultery with Mrs. Potiphar But the ultimate reason he gives for this is not just, as it says in verse 9 of Genesis 39, it would be a sin against Potiphar. He ends by saying, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? In other words, Joseph recognizes that yielding to the temptation to commit adultery with her is a sin against God and detracts from the glory of God. And then Psalm 51, where David is repenting of his sin with Bathsheba, as well as his having arranged the murder of her husband Uriah. And he says, though he has clearly sinned against others, right? He sinned against his own army in having this exposure of Uriah and others where they're killed in sinning as he did against Bathsheba. But in Psalm 51, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And you think, well, David, you've sinned against a whole bunch of people. But there's a sense in which when we're truly repentant, we see our sin as against God 
and we have to deal with it at that level. So the glory of God is very much in view in true church discipline and proper church discipline. So is the purity of the church because scandalous sin that is tolerated in the midst of the congregation has the effect of contaminating the whole body. I as much said this at an earlier point, right, that if there's this sin that doesn't go dealt with, others could be emboldened to commit such sin. Oh, you can get away with this. And so church discipline says, no, we're interested in God's glory. We're interested in the purity of the church. You can think about Ananias and Sapphira. They were mentioned in one of the earlier podcasts. And it said that that discipline that occurred, they dropped dead at Peter's word. That certainly caused the whole church to fear and to say, okay, this is a serious thing. You shouldn't sell a piece of property and represent that you gave the whole amount. In other words, you shouldn't try to make yourself look more holy, more godly uh, than you may be uh, and try to you know, live a phony life. This is a not something we want. We need real purity. And the third, of course, is to reclaim the person, to to recover back the person who is the sinner. You engage in church discipline because somebody who is in sin and is not repenting of their sin uh, is out of communion and fellowship with God and the church, right? They're, they're, both of those things uh, are, are true. They're, they're not in communion. And so you may deny communion to someone who is impenitent with the notion that they might return. And I have known, I've had friends who have been excommunicated from the church for years. And I'm thinking of someone in particular was excommunicated for five years and a very close friend. And he came back. He was not happy all during that time because he was a believer, but very alienated from church and from Christ and from God's people. Uh, and he came back and uh, that's a wonderful thing. But I think, as I say, a fourth reason is significant, though it's often overlooked, and that's justice for the offended party. Now, hear me if you would. If a seriously offended party is faced with um, a church body, a body of elders, say, that's unwilling to press for repentance on the part of the offender, this opens up the offended party, the party that's been sinned against, uh, to bitterness and rancor. So in other words, if a party is a, one party is abusing another party, but the church just turns a blind eye to that and won't deal with it, then it, it opens up the offended party, the victim, we might say in this case, to real bitterness and rancor. It's, it's not love, you see, for the victim on the part of the church to exhort him or her to just get over it. It's never a proper way of ministering for the church to speak to people who have been hurt by saying a version of get over it. We And you might think, well, that would never happen. Well, it does if you just say, well, you just need to move on, and they don't deal with it. They won't deal with it. So it's important that the ones particular who are charged to carry out the discipline of the church, the elders of the church, uh, who are charged in their sphere, you know, it does say in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And what that means, if you read Romans 12, is we ought not personally to seek vengeance. We ought not to seek it ourselves. But it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that the civil magistrate 
doesn't have a right because when the Lord said vengeance is mine, he can assign it to be carried out in certain respects. So the Lord assigns the civil magistrate who has the sword to carry out justice. He also assigns this to the church. So, I mean, the church shouldn't say, well, yes, this man who was a member committed adultery. His wife uh, just needs to forgive him and to and to get on with the marriage. This could happen to anyone. That's a that's an essentially wrong way of coming about this, because there's no proper sympathy for the victim. There's no sense that the victim has been sinned against. And of course, obviously, if somebody is sinned against in this way, they have a right to sue out a divorce uh, if their partner is unfaithful in this way. But some of our churches are a little behind the eight ball on this. And they want to say, vengeance belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to the church. Well, carrying out proper discipline does belong to the church, just like carrying out the exercise of the sword belongs to the state. So we can properly counsel the offended that vengeance is the Lord's only when we're willing to act and do our duty, when we're willing to to press the impenitent for penitence and to to exercise discipline when they don't, to exercise a censure. That's important. To fail to do so because of a misguided sympathy for the offender, that's actually unloving and it's potentially quite destructive for the offended party. And so these are some of the purposes, we might say, of church discipline. And I'm suggesting a fourth, a, a, an interest in justice for the offended or the victim. Um, just to recap, too, some of what we have said in the earlier times, but to be a little more explicit, as we talk about some of the principles of church discipline, two things we particularly said, and I want to talk a little bit more about them, was that offenses should be dealt with as privately as possible, and they should be dealt with as personally and locally as possible. So what we mean there is the kind of dynamic that we see in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, and Luke 7, 3 and following, which is, if your brother sins against you, go and seek to reclaim him. And uh, let me let me urge a few considerations um, even before the allegedly offended party goes to the offending party. So we could say that, first of all, you need to look to yourself. Matthew 7, 1 to 5 says that before you get the telephone pole out of another person's eye, you need to get the little toothpick, or rather the telephone pole. It, uh, before you get the toothpick out of another's eye, you need to get the telephone pole out of your own eye. I knew I'd get it right. So you need to say, what what may be my part in this situation? In other words, I believe my brother or my sister has sinned against me, but do I have a part in this? We often do. Uh, and of course, Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says when we're offering our gift before the altar, if we realize, oh yeah, here's my part, we go and we make it right. And then you determine what the offense is. Uh, if, if you believe your brother or sister, again, we're back to Matthew 18, has offended you, you need to be able to say what offense, uh, what is the offense? What commandment has been broken? Uh, and if one of the Ten Commandments has been broken, then you need to say, well, does it disrupt your fellowship and communion? In other words, 1 Peter 4, 8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. So even when somebody has sinned against us, we have to decide, is that something I can just let go? Uh, I can I can simply forgive and let that go. I don't need to go to them. 
or does it really break our fellowship and do I need to go to them? And so we'll pick it up next time with some more considerations of principles of church discipline and how humility is really needed. Encouraging words from Dr. Strange on this topic of church discipline. Next week, he'll tackle further principles of it, particularly the humility that is so desperately needed in these situations. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.